Christ is risen. Truly he is risen. And welcome back to Becoming Byzantine. My name is Father Michael Wynn. And we will today we will be going through the additional prayers and services of the church as paragraphs 500 to 532 in the Catechism, Christ our Pascha. In our last session, we were speaking about the holy mystery of orders, holy orders. Well, there are other orders within the church as well. Um, presently, we call them the minor orders, and they would be called candle bearer, cantor, and reader, or cantor slash reader, and subdeacon. That's within at least the Ukrainian Catholic Church. The cantor slash reader may be uh, into two different uh, minor orders as well. Those in the minor orders are actually called clergy. So if you look at the canons of the church and whenever it says clergy, it would refer not only to the major orders, but also to these minor orders. There are other orders within the church as well. We look at the Acts of the Apostles and there was the Order of the Widows and so forth. Um, there isn't that today. The orders tend to uh, tend to have come up when there was a need for them within the life of the church. And um, it may be that sometime in the future that there may be other orders that are here or these, the candle bearer and cantor slash reader and subdeacon may not exist. Although those three orders are important today uh, for the celebration of the divine liturgy, especially when the bishop is present. So um, I would find it hard to see those three disappear at any time in the near future. While they're called minor orders, they're they're not ordained uh, at uh, at uh, they're rather they're consecrated. So they are the consecrated people uh, in order to have a particular service within the life of the church. And since our life revolves around the Eucharist, these three uh, are uh, participate in that celebration of the Eucharist in a particular way in order for the celebration, the ritual to be beautiful, to be rational, and to be efficient. Uh, and these people are, uh, these uh, people in these minor orders, consecrated people, are usually those that have an ability. So you just don't appoint anyone to be a reader. Uh, they have to have an ability to read publicly so that people can hear them, so that it is intelligible understandable, and uh, they have, a, for example, a tendency not to place their own emphasis upon the Word of God, but to just bring the Word of God aloud to people. For someone who's a cantor, consecrated as a cantor, they definitely have to have an ability to sing. Marge Simpson would not fit as a cantor. So there's an interior readiness, as it says in the Catechism, to shine with faith and render service by the Word which is symbolized by the objects used during the consecration, such as a candle or the epistle book or so forth. These, these, there has to be interior readiness of the individual. Monasticism. You know, there are very few Eastern Catholic Byzantine monasteries in North America. There are some um, in in the States, in Canada, there's not one full monastic community here. That's a Ukrainian Catholic. Um, I'm, there may be a Melkite one, I'm not sure, but all the same, monasticism. In the early church, there were some 
who ran away from the world because they felt God was calling them to do so in order to pray for the world. They weren't running away from the world because they just wanted to get away from it all and so forth. There was a call by the Lord placed on their heart to move away from the world and the busyness of the world to be in some sort of isolation, either alone or with a small community, and in order to pray for the world. It was to seek to be holy, and in doing so, to assist the entire body of Christ in becoming holy. Remember, I said much earlier in one of my sessions that as the as one person is healed, this is in confession, as one person is healed, the entire body receives the benefit of that healing. And so it is with monasticism. Um, uh, Abbot Boniface Luch, the founder of uh, Holy Transfiguration Monastery in Redwood Valley, California, had the um, privilege of spending a few months with that community in 1992 in the summer uh, with the Shaftiski Institute uh, intensive study program. And I stayed for, um, I think, six weeks afterwards living with the monks. He said that monasticism is the powerhouse of the church. It's like you have a powerhouse at a dam that brings the electricity to the rest of the town or the city or the countryside. The same way a, mona a, a, a monastery and the monastic community is that powerhouse for the church. Because they're the ones who have sacrificed from, from their daily lives and so forth um, and to live together and to pray for the rest of us. Now, in the monasticism, there are three levels, the novitiate, um, a monk, and then a schema monk. So the, it's, it, it very much aligns with the beginning. So uh, a novitiate, novitiate would be somebody who's interested and really to make, willing to make uh, some some commitment for time to discern that this that whether the lord uh, is desiring this of you and 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 also if there's a good fit with the community and then when you become a monk that is making your first profession um and vows and then a schema monk would be one who has final vows perpetual vows and you receive the schema which is a long piece of cloth that that goes over your head, it has a hole, so that it, it, it runs down the front and the, and the back, and it often has the symbols of the crucifixion upon it. So and a, mona a monastic life is lifelong. This is, the, this is the intent, that you would give up everything to follow a rule uh, of the community. You would receive, the, uh, you would no longer wear worldly clothes, but you'd wear a simple black garment, a habit, um, you, uh, for women, they would have maybe a type of, um, of uh, veil. If you look at monastic women's uh, habits, they have a type of veil running down the back, or you wear a hat and so forth. Often monks play, pray the, uh, the Chotki, the Jesus prayer. We'll talk about that in a moment. And they try to live the evangelical councils and the Beatitudes. We also. Um, have other blessings, uh, the, the occasional services that we have for, for blessings. And so they can be of, of uh, blessing of buildings, such as uh, 
the church itself, little chapels, even our homes. We have a blessing for the establishment of a house or a home. We have an annual blessing at Theophany. So we bring the waters blessed at Theophany into our own homes and sprinkle them throughout every year. Uh, We also bless other places like cemeteries. All the items that are used within uh, the life of a church, of a parish community, such as the altar, the chalice, the icons, the crosses, the bells, and so forth, are all consecrated. For the blessing of bells, the, the bells are even named often. And we're all, it's all blessed because it all points to the life that is to come. That's why we bless things. It points to that, that these things, the buildings or whatever, whatever else, that they are all uh, used in the proper end towards the fullness of salvation. Uh, other blessings that take place are upon um, certain certain activities, uh, different types of prayer. So you might want to have a chotke blessed or a rosary blessed. Um, the, there's even blessings for farm fields, for beehives, for cars. It's a very any vehicle. You know, we recall uh, Saint Elias. You know, whose chariot was as fast as the wind, and so forth. We understand that the Lord blesses these things in order, uh, in order to again consecrate them, so that their use becomes toward the fullness of salvation in Christ. Uh, we have different blessings through the year as well. At Easter, we bless Paschal foods. On the feast of um, the Transfiguration of our Lord, it's the first fruits of the season. Um, for the feast of the Dormition of the Mother of God, it's flowers and other herbage. Um, we also bless bread, white, uh, wheat, wine, and oil uh, and during the Litia service on the feasts of, of, of certain feasts of our Lord uh, and uh, uh, certain saints throughout the year. That, uh, so that these gifts are distributed to the needy on the eve of the feast. It wasn't just... Um, bread, wheat, wine, and oil that were blessed, but those are representative of the gathering of other goods that, are, that would be distributed to the poor. As a matter of fact, the Sheptisky Institute um, in their chapel, when they have a, a Litia feast, they'll ask people to bring, you know, dry goods, canned goods for the poor, and they're distributed afterwards uh, that evening. On the Feast of the Encounter of Our Lord, we bless candles because he is a light of revelation to the nations in the Song of Simeon, right? We bless branches of palms or, and or willows on Palm Sunday. Also because these are the branches of virtues. Other services are for the deceased, funerals. Uh, and not just funerals, but other memorial services as well. So we pray for the deceased, for the forgiveness of their sins, the repose of their souls, because it's good to do so. It's recorded in the second Maccabees. The key to understanding prayer for the deceased is that we always view death in the light of Christ's victory over death in his resurrection. Right now we're singing all the time, Christ has risen from the dead, trampling death by death, and those in the tombs giving life, right? Um, and we... We, we look at the deceased always in the light, like as in the icon, 
Christ is raising both Adam and Eve out of the ground. So we pray with that hope that the Lord would raise our loved one, the one for whom we're praying, uh, out of the grave. Now, when somebody has reposed on the Lord, there is naturally mourning and grief which we go through. Our society tries to minimize that now in, in often in just looking at the celebration of life of an individual and not acknowledging the mourning and the grief that people go through through, through the separation and the loss of, uh, this, of this loved one's presence in their day-to-day lives. It's important to keep the tension uh, between the two, to remember them, but also to grieve the mourn. And, and it's all done in the hope in Christ. All of us wrapped in the hope of Christ. And so all of our services keep this tension in place. That's the beauty of our services for the deceased. The funeral service, uh, we, we expect the body to be present because we show reverence for the body of the deceased. It's based on our understanding of anthrop- anth- uh, the anthropology, what, what it means to be a human person. The body is present because it it was a temple of the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says. So we sing from the scripture, especially from the Psalms, and there are special hymns, the uh, uh, hymnography. This, these are um, uh, liturgical reflections upon scripture and about the, the, actu- the actuality of death in our lives, expressing our sorrow and our hope in the Lord. So it's sorrow joined to hope. Um, the funeral service, there's actually an order of burial, um, one for bishops and priests and monastics, and then there's one for laity and one for children. So there's four distinct rituals for burial. Each of them are beautiful. The one for bishops and priests is quite lengthy. There's a number, uh, There's, if I'm not mistaken, uh, 12 readings of the Gospels, epistles and Gospels, through that service. And um, at the end of each of these services, uh, there is a uh, panachida, which is just the last part of what we'd call the great panachida. And it is, we have a singing of uh, Vichnaya Pamyat, which is uh, translated to everlasting or eternal memory. And it is to remember eternally the deceased, asking the Lord to remember eternally the deceased, that this person would remain in eternal life, to be constantly be before the Lord. It's a very very moving part of the service. Often um, at the later in in the other services for the deceased, memorials that we have, that uh, somebody could be deceased for a number of years, but as soon as we start to sing Vishnaya Pamyat, all these emotions come up of the grief and the mourning that are still there, always in the hope of the Lord, uh, a very moving service. So there are memorial services called Parastas, which means to gather around, and as I mentioned, the more, more common, shorter service is called the Panakida. The, para, the parastas and the order of burial for the laity are almost identical. They're so, they're so close that often even the clergy call the order of burial 
parastas. There is a distinction, though, in uh, the very last part of it. I won't go into detail, just so you know. Now, memorials are done on the third, the ninth, and the fortieth days after death. Third, well, simply because of the resurrection, right? Ninth, according to the number of orders of angels that we of which we are aware, and then the fortieth again. The 40th day, uh, our Lord's ascension into heaven, 40 is representative of the fullness of time. There, are, There's legend. People will speak about, oh, you know, my, my wife died and she'll ascend to heaven on the 40th day. It's not the church's teaching that is of, of legend, it, but it certainly does express the hope, hopeful desire of, of, the, of the widow or widower. Also, every Saturday is... Um, dedicated to the deceased. Uh, I don't, didn't know if you knew about that, but we do remember the deceased every Saturday, especially at the Divine Liturgy. And then there are five All Souls Saturdays within, uh, within the liturgical year. There's one before Lent starts. There's one, three of them, excuse me, during Great Lent. And lastly, the Saturday before Pentecost, is an All Soul Saturday. There was a sixth. It is within uh, the history books, which would take place in October, um, but it is, for the most part, fallen into disuse. And lastly, you may have seen in some parish bulletins, or you may have been to something called Sorica Uste. It literally means 40 mouths. And this is um, re remembering that in, earlier in the life of the church, up to even at times, 40 priests would come together to pray for the deceased. Um, so you'll see during uh, the Lenten services in your, in your parish bulletin, Sorokusta, which is, prayer, is prayers for the deceased. And generally, that's what it means. Now, something which has been very much popularized by Hollywood or exorcisms. And um, while there are some elements of uh, these movies which may be true, um, for the most part, uh, they are uh, part of uh, imagination of the creators of these movies. Remember, St. Paul speaks that, you know, remember, we're, we're in a spiritual warfare here. We're dealing with powers and principalities and so forth. So that's always going on. Indeed, we're tempted um, by these little gizmi, right? These little thoughts that come and knock on the door of our heart and mind, the very heart, right? And, um, you know, one of the, you'll learn later on in, in further lessons, one of the first steps in the spiritual life is something called nepsis or watchfulness, to be careful of those little thoughts that come a knocking. And uh, if they're not of the, of, uh, if they're not of the Lord, if they're thoughts of temptation, or distortion of some natural appetite, we should just let them go. Don't, don't even start to encounter with them. But sometimes, sometimes we might become impassioned. We've, we've dealt with this temptation so long that it actually becomes a passion in our life, that we're, we're enslaved to it. And, and there are some people who become possessed by the demons that, that produce these thoughts. Possession is the severest form of the devil's domination over a person. It, it happens when there's a person's willingness 
to become dependent upon the evil one rather than God. So that their will has been corrupted and to a point where they are now choosing um, instead of the good, the greatest good, not, not the greatest good, not the good, but evil. And um, so they can become enslaved and that would, be, that would become, uh, that person would become possessed. There's a special rite that is uh, developed for the casting out of the devil. It's the, part of the church's prayer for healing. Um, and uh, in the East, it's uh, very passive. You can find this, if you can find a copy of the great book of needs, it's four volumes. Uh, you can find the prayers of St. Basil of exorcism. It's much different than what, is, what uh, many people may be familiar with in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, there's a beautiful uh, movie called Ostrov, uh, um, the island. It's a, it's a Russian movie. Uh, fantastic. Highly recommend it. And you can see uh, an exorcism uh, in an Eastern style take place near the end of that movie. Uh, and uh, it's quite beautifully done. And it's all dependent on the Lord's action, not upon our command or, or anything like that. One thing to remember about, about people who have uh, been possessed and, and so forth, that the image of God remains. The image of God cannot be taken away. So what happens is that may, a person may have, I don't want to sound uh, presented as quantitative, but bear with me with that codicil, that um, a person may have grown in the likeness of God, but then become enslaved to a passion to a point where they then become possessed. It's that likeness which is affected. And the church provides uh, this special exorcism, these special prayers, uh, asking the Lord to heal this person and to restore them. And lastly, uh, there are other prayer services which we have. The Akathist hymn, it literally means the not sitting hymn. <laughs> it's, you know, it means, you mean you stand up for it. And um, the Akafist hymn is um, a, there are various Akafist hymns to the Mother of God, to our Lord, um, and to different saints and so forth. Um, the most famous, of, of course, is the Mother of God, which is sung on the Feast of the Dormition of the Mother of God. Also done, uh, sung on the fifth Saturday of Great Lent. And it is uh, of, um, 12 sections divided into two, uh, so 24 total strophes, and it would form often an acrostic. So the first letter of the first word of each strophe would, uh, if you were to read them down, would form either the Greek alphabet or they would form a certain uh, word or phrase. So there's always an, a contagion and then an equus for each uh, 12th, uh, 12th of the Akafist hymn. And uh, so one is basically chanted, and then there's a melody usually for uh, the second part. There's also malebans, which is simply another way of saying a prayer service. In Greek, we say paraklesis, or paraklesis, some would say these are often prayers of consolation or asking for supplication, advocacy from the Mother of God or one of the saints. Uh, and finally, um, in the Eastern Christian tradition, hymns and carols uh, are very important um, because they are deeply theological in nature. Now, 
Now, for the Ukrainian Catholics, the Christmas carols, we'll just look at those for a moment. The melodies which we sing um, actually are ancient melodies from pagan hymns. But in Kievan Rus, uh, the Christianization of Kievan Rus reached so far into the soil, right down into the roots, that it got into the trees where these hymns and feasts were actually uh, Christianized. So even the 12 meatless dishes before uh, on Christmas Eve comes from originally from a pagan um, celebration of the light starting to overcome the darkness at the time of the year, a part of, uh, but uh, they uh, became Christianized. And so the hymns that were written, the carols that were written, um, like Bopravichne, God, God Pre-Eternal, um, these are deeply theological. They express deep theology on the incarnation, for example, um, and th those are carols. Then there's Shadrilkie, uh, uh, which are for um, theophany. That word actually means generous. And so that theophany is uh, the generous outpouring of God's life for us for the sanctification of the world. So that as, as the beginning of our sanctification, our salvation. And the hymns are also uh, deeply, deeply um, theological. Um, a lot of our hymns are... Uh, in honor of the mother of God and her and her act, uh, her participation in the act of salvation or her saying yes. And the expression of that in the many hymns, just think of some of the Christmas carols that, you know, or God eternal. And, and compare that with, we wish you a Merry Christmas, we wish you a Merry Christmas. So what often people in the world today call Christmas carols are indeed just songs. They're not, they're not carols that carry a teaching about the incarnation for us. We'll continue next with our look into the liturgical year. Thank you. 